Welcome to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast, the only podcast designed for the families of those who are struggling with addiction and codependency. If addiction has rocked your household and you don't know where to turn to get support, then this podcast was built for you. Our host has written the book on how families can navigate the scary world of addiction. Chronic Hope, Parenting the Addicted Child, and Chronic Hope, Families and Addiction can both be found on Amazon today. We invite you to connect with us on Facebook, as well as subscribing to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here is your host, author, therapist, and CEO of the Chronic Hope Institute, Kevin Peterson. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's Kevin Peterson, it's, uh, founder and owner of the pod, Chronic Hope uh, Institute, and welcome to the Chronic, Chronic Hope Podcast. And uh, we have a special guest today uh, from BRC, Lane Rust. He's going to introduce himself in just a second, but what we're going to try and cover today is talk about your loved one in treatment, or it does your how do you know when your loved one needs treatment, and then once they're in treatment, what should you do, and then how do we reunite and bring the whole family together? And as usual, Lane and I are going to share our personal experiences, our professional experiences, and and give you our thoughts and ideas. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to hit us up hard and tell us what you think, and we'll go from there. So, without any further ado. I want to introduce my good friend Lane Rust from uh, he's the director of family services at BRC Recovery. Lane, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Kevin. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me today. Honored to be here. It's great to have you, man. And uh, it's great since it's a lot of fun to work with you. And uh, I love the fact that you and I are sort of on the same page almost almost always, you know, which is awesome. So. Without any, you know, slowing down, let's just jump right in. I, would you please introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what your life looked like before your recovery, and then maybe, you know, t- towards the end of that, right? Give us a little bit of a, um, what it's like, you know, about the life recovery has given you now. Sure, sure, yeah. So um, I, I grew up in a, a household with a mother and father. They're still married today. I have two siblings, an older brother. A younger sister and um i knew from an early age that i was just i felt a little bit different awkward um social situations i was always the the funny guy the loud guy the one that was always trying to draw attention to myself um and was pretty good at it i, I did a good job of drawing attention to myself um that attention shifted over time but um what, what I what I found when I entered when alcohol was introduced to my body um, I think I was around 14 years of age um, I, I just felt alive connected kind of all the worries that I had about what people were thinking about me um, are these people are, are they on my side are they against me are they standing in judgment all that stuff just kind of vanished and um, I, I was not a hard continuous drinker right out the gate like you hear a lot of people talk about um but i I did certainly find value in what substances and in the specific case alcohol did in my body um i i I found um, cocaine and other substances by the time i was about 17 years of age and i was i was a very driven and committed athlete uh growing up um i i felt like that my brother is a great athlete. He's still, you know, I, there's not very many things I can 
beat my brother at still today. But um, I remember growing up and thinking, you know, I, I'd like to be uh, a professional athlete. That was that was my goal and that was my my drive. And I, there was nothing I was more determined to do than that. Um, sad to say, even scholastically, I kind of put all that stuff on the back burner and I was just driven and committed to being a good athlete. Um, substances interfered with my athletic career um, as they did pretty much every other aspiration and, and goal that I had in life. And so um, I found myself in treatment in 2006 for the first time. And um, I learned a lot about the illness, the disease model of substance use disorder. I came to identify that I was an alcoholic and an, and an addict. Um, and I did okay for about 300 days, uh, roughly. And then I, um, I found myself slipping back into old behaviors. I lost connection with my recovery network and, um, I, I relapsed in 2007 and the next three years were probably the most challenging three years or the, or the roughest three years that I can remember and not necessarily externally, but internally. Um, I, I had come to, to realize what was going on with me. And I also knew that there was a different way to live. And when you're living apart from that and you know the truth deep down, it becomes really challenging internally. Um, or that was my experience anyways. And so 2010, I entered treatment for the last time. Um, you know, I might mention I'm a, I'm a jailbird too. I go to jail regularly. Um, I went to jail <laughs> about eight times. Um, over the course of my eight or nine year active using period and my family, specifically my mother, um, I, I, you know, she was my primary supporter enabler. Um, and she would, she, I would call her and threaten her and say really rude and crude things to her, things I would, would never imagine saying today. Um, but it was really with the full intention of, of pulling on her heartstrings and getting her to move around and, come get me out of jail again. And a lot of sweet promises made that I'll never do this again. And um, I, I would imagine if you're tuning in today, you, you've been around someone or understand a little bit of what I just described. That's, that's a very common situation that I get to deal with and see today is that um, there's, there's just a stuck in a cycle where you're not able to pull yourself out and the family, um, with good intentions oftentimes continues to keep that cycle alive. And honestly, it wasn't until my family woke up and maybe the waking up was pain driven, right? I, I, I like to think that sometimes families get in enough pain and have enough, frankly, um, to where they just simply say, we're not playing the game with you any longer. Um, so I'm a product of boundaries. I'm a product of, um, you know, being told no and the family honoring the no um, over time. So um, I'm very passionate about getting to work with families today. And my life today looks entirely different um, than it did back in 2003 through 10. Um, I've, I've got two beautiful children. I'm married to a woman that's also in recovery. She's She's been sober um, almost 11 years now. I'll, I'll celebrate 12 years next month um and uh we live in the great state of utah uh, now so was was in texas for about the first 10 years now we live in utah just outside of salt lake city um 
and life is life is amazing today um i'm, I'm able that's to awesome. be a, yeah so that's great man and i i mean i appreciate you sharing your story about about uh you know being in and out of jail and and uh i'm, I'm guessing and this is something that i get a lot with the families i work with I'm guessing at some point your family stopped bailing you out. Is that fair to say? They stopped bailing me out after the eighth time. So um, se seven, seven times in a row. And I was out usually within 48 hours. The last time they let me sit under the direction of the treatment professionals that they contacted, they said, do not get him out of jail um, and allow him to have an experience and, I, I found some humility inside that facility. Um, I know that much. So yeah, it, it, it took my family a while before they, they realized and, and were able to sidestep that fear of, well, if he's in there and what will happen. And I think they kind of came to realize that if he's not in there, there's a much greater chance of the ultimate fear we have happening, which is that our son's going to no longer be with us. Right. Exactly. And that's the fan. A lot of the families I work with are like, you know, when he's in jail or in treatment, I feel safe because because I, I know he's in a safe situation and and I agree with the you know, what your family was told when I, the families I work with I'm like no leave him there you know I mean just keep him there and let him I mean not as a not, not as a you know punitive or being mean or it's like no 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 I mean he earned that let's just you know let's talk about what the next step is and the plan is so yeah absolutely yeah and okay and then um, can you tell us a little bit about your professional qualifications and what you do for BRC? Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor. I've worked at BRC since roughly, well, September of 2010. So um, I'd been out of treatment for, I was about six, seven months sober when I got hired. I was a tech, um, which my responsibilities then were simply taking clients to meetings, making sure clients were... Um, where they were supposed to be, um, meals were served, et cetera. I was then asked to move into our aftercare program, which is called the Segway program. Where we do monitoring, recovery, coaching, case management, and family support. Um, that took place for about a year. And then I was moved into what we call a recovery manager role. And that was where I was inpatient, working with clients, guiding them through the 12 steps, um, also assisting families, keeping the families up to date, what's going on real time, week in and week out, how their loved one was showing up um, and, and providing them with some guidance. In about 2015, um, BRC moved into where we had this branch of the family services department. So um, they, they saw the need much like I think you, you understand, Kevin, of the importance of involving the family, keeping them in the loop getting them active in their own process of healing, changing. Um, and that, that has been my role for about the past four years. So I've, I've worn a lot of hats at BRC, um, pretty well versed in what we do inpatient, out, outpatient, aftercare. Um, so I'm a, and I'm also a product of, of the program. So, um, wow. but yeah, my, my, uh, my, uh, so I've, I've been employed there for, It'll be 12 years this September. So I just celebrated 11 years with the company in September of 2021. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. you. Know, that's fantastic. All right, let's jump into the fun questions here. Um, how important is family involvement in the treatment and recovery process? So 
one thing I would say to anybody that's tuning in today, um, the demographic that we had the opportunity to serve, um, much of the clients are still very dependent. They're not independent. They're not a free apart from their family systems at this point. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of what I would say to families is that what we see, especially with the young adult population at Spearhead Lodge is that, um, if we can get the family moving in the right direction, oftentimes and coming to recognize areas where their codependency is active, where their loved one is, like I mentioned earlier, able to pull on that fear cord or certain heartstrings that are causing them to make, make decisions based on fear. Um, if we can help the family come to recognize that and begin to um, hold firm boundaries in place, support, detach with kindness, love from afar, um, oftentimes that gives the client and treatment space to really begin to um, build resiliency within themselves, problem solve, start to feel better about who they are as an individual. Um, it never fails. Anybody that checks into treatment, if you ask their family questions, that one of the first things they'll tell you is that they suffer from low levels of self-esteem. And so oftentimes, right, what we, what we do providing space and inpatient long-term continuums is that we give the loved one a separation from the, the people in their lives who are typically um, stepping in, fixing, managing, controlling situations in order to prop their loved one up, give them a shot of excitement, get them motivated, right? All great intention, but um, it, it's it finding that space and time away from the family system allows the client to, to, to really stabilize and plant their feet firmly and become their own person. While they're doing that, it's vitally important for the families to be um, doing their own work, right? And I know, Kevin, you talk a lot about that and involving yourself in support groups, therapy. Um, and I know that's what, you know, that's right on your wheelhouse and, and you're really skilled at what you do there. I, I think that uh, that is a crucial component um, specifically for the demographic that I work with. You know, I, I agree. And I think the thing I always tell people, and I, and I mean, I know you and I agree with this is, the first thing, one of the first things the families always ask me is, well, what's the, what's the most important thing I can do now that we've got them into treatment? And my response is always get into your own recovery, you know? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, I want you to start reading these books about codependency, read my book. Um, I want you to start educating yourself on the family system and, and how addiction affects the family system is the idea of removing one person, dropping them into treatment for 30, 60, or 90 days, and then bringing them back and thinking everything's all better and fixed is kind of kooky. It's kind of nutty, you know? Right. Right. And, and we have to change the entire system. And then the next thing I always say is, I want you to understand you're not responsible for their addiction, but you are responsible for how you respond to it, you mm -hmm. know? And, and so that requires family change. And, and, and that's what I'm, I love working with you guys because you guys have that same philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that, you know, I've, I've come to realize and really trying to move families from that first phase, which a lot of families will involve themselves. They'll read literature. They might find their way into a family support meeting. There's a lot of different avenues to take at this point. Um, you know, a lot of them, I'm sure. Um, yep. but specifically, right. Like, um, 
knowledge is vital, but knowledge doesn't get family members where they need to be, right? The emotional rearrangement, um, attuning to their own story, their own journey, honoring themselves. Um, when families take that knowledge and, and move that into their own process, like you're describing, um, and really start to do some of the deeper emotional work, that's when families oftentimes have the ability, even though they're terrified, they can still go the direction that they've been advised that they've read about. Oftentimes families they, uh, that, I, that I have history of working with, um, you know, much like the, the person in treatment, right? That midbrain is activated, the fear survival center and logic, sound judgment, emotional regulations out the window. So we understand from a scientific standpoint why families do what they do and sometimes allowing them to see that that's very normal. Um, it's, it's human design. That's how we're designed to function. Um, yep. But if we can, if we can get them to start rearranging emotionally and coming to peace with some of their own internally, that that's where we'll start to see, I know I really need to go right here. I've been going left a lot, but then I can contact a support group. I can get with my therapist. I can contact Kevin at Chronic Hope. Um, you know, and, and ask for guidance, right? The, the ability to pause becomes uh, an operable move. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I Absolutely. And I, you're right. Starting them off with education and knowledge and reading is fantastic, but it has to turn into action and it has to be engaging in their own process. And, and, I, and I understand that that's challenging because it means they're going to have to, they're going to have to look at themselves, you know, absolutely. but I think, I think one thing that the folks that are watching or listening uh, would say, one thing I would say is that both you and I are a product of uh, both of our families getting into some level of recovery and saying, we're going to hold the boundaries and we're not going to budge. And then we as a family are going to start to change the way we operate. And, and I, I can tell you from the perspective of someone who was in active addiction, nothing is more terrifying than the family changing, you know, because it just, you're like, wait, well, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> that's not what you guys normally do. Normally, if somebody caves in and gives in and lets me do what I want to do, and you know, what what's this? What's this new thing? And you know, it raises the bar, right? It forces everybody to engage. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, I again, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I, I'm I'm a product of the family shifting and moving in a new direction, which pulled me in that way. Um, and, and, you know, if you're in treatment and you're, you're newly sober, like you said, it's terrifying to think like my family's starting to talk differently to me. They're not taking the bait anymore. Right. They're not. Um, I hammered my mom on my weekly phone call and she hung up on me. Right? It's like, Whoa, what's going on here? You know, my mom hung up on me in jail and said, this is, this is your one and only option. And I told her, you know, some, things I won't say today, but she, she said, well, I hate to hear that that's how it's going to have to be. And the next thing I heard was your call has ended. Um, and <laughs> I stepped away from that phone and that was probably a, a paramount moment for me. You know, that, that was where the little guy inside of me said, Oh boy, right. Things are, things have changed. Yeah. You know, I had the same experience. My dad laid out the rules and I was like, Oh yeah, I've heard this nonsense before. And, but they held their ground, you know, they, they took it seriously. And, and so, and you know, what I always tell people it's in my story. And I think you and I have talked about this is that 
they held their ground for like six weeks. So this time around, I, you know, did what all tough guys do. I called mom and started crying about how unfair this was and how I was being hung out to dry. And this was just so not right. And, and they were waiting for that, you know, and, and they were like, well, I'll tell you what, if you start yeah. seeing a therapist with your dad, we'll, we'll talk, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that was all part of the path, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, so, so the next question that we came up with is why family involvement is so important for recovery. And I, that's kind of like the second question that we had, but, but let's dig a little, maybe dig a little deeper on you know, what that family involvement looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of different routes that I'm aware of today. Um, you know, individualized therapy, family therapy, counseling, um, there's a lot of great family support meetings and groups. Um, on that note, a, a lot of times I think families think if they go into a meeting, they sit in the back, right? Much like somebody in recovery, right? If I just show up and check the box, things are going to, things are going to get better. Um, and, and I encourage families to go and involve yourself, shake hands, talk to people after the meetings at some point, if there's more, a deeper dive coursework, 12 step work, involve yourself, um, begin working with the sponsor, begin working with, um, if there's a family packet or things that need to be done so that you can bring to present to the next group, do the work, start looking at yourself. Like you said, that's the key component, I think. And, Whatever, whatever family, whatever route they choose, whatever fits the mold for them, I do believe that involving yourself, um, you know, doing the heavy lifting is is necessary for people that really, really are interested in change. Yeah, you know, I love that, and I love what you said too, because that's again, I get the same thing. I get, oh, I go to Al-Anon. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Um, do you have a sponsor, and are you working the steps? And they're like, well, no. I mean, I go to the meeting. I'm like. And I want you to understand that's wonderful. I'm glad you're going to the meeting. But how would you feel if your your loved one came back from treatment and said, well, I'll go to the meetings, but I'm not going to get a sponsor and I'm not going to work the steps. And they're like, well, no. I'm like, okay. So again, you know, another one of my quickie phrases is you can't expect them to do something you're not willing to do. Absolutely. You know? So we have a question out of Facebook. It says, how will going to Al-Anon recovery meetings help my son stay sober. You first. Well, uh, that's a, that's a sneaky one. I think, um, I, 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 I do believe that, um, going to Al-Anon recovery will, uh, the byproduct is that it will increase your son's, um, chances of staying sober, but not necessarily having anything to do with your son. It's because of the involvement with the individual who's attending Al-Anon, like we've been talking about today, right? They've made decisions and started taking actions. They're going to alter the family system, the dynamic. And so that individual moving in a new direction naturally is going to impact the other person in treatment um, and or, or who's out of treatment at this point. Um, and, and, and it's just a, it's, it sets everybody up for a, a healthier situation, right? If we've got five healthy individuals in a family system, um, as opposed to one or two, our chances are higher, right? Because like you said earlier, Kevin, I'm going to look for that one, two or three, you know, one of those people inside my family system that's not well, I'm going to move in that direction and see if I can't um, get back into, into, 
the, the grips of my own illness with him supporting that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing I always tell people and the, and the families that I work with and that question is, I, I want you to understand that we don't have the ability to keep anybody else sober. And, and so you're going to Al-Anon to help you uh, learn a different way of life and, and how to respond differently to him. In turn, I fully believe that will actually create a different system and that that will force your son to sort of start paying attention differently. And, and, and a lot of times, too, what I get is the families are telling me, oh, you know, I have this anxiety. I have these fears. I can't sleep at night. I'm like, and that's what the Al-Anon's for, is that those folks will talk to you about that and show you how to resolve that. And because the resolution isn't controlling your son. You know, that's like you said, that's the old way. That's me going right like I always do. Well, we're mm -hmm. going to go left this time. And, and you're going to have to trust it that this is going to make a huge difference because here's two guys that have got long-term sobriety saying, here's what made a difference is when my family went left instead of going right, that changed everything, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What are a few things to avoid when your loved one gets home from treatment? Well, again, with, with, a. A lot of a lot of what we see at, at BRC um, is that families will slip back into the the natural parental roles, right? Of just let me take care, let me fix, let me manage. Um, and so, anything a family member can do to um, love, be involved, but not overstep their bounds, right? A lot of times, where what are the bounds? What what where where are the the, the lines in the sand. Well, how do I know if I should or shouldn't? Um, you know, we, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of having somebody in your corner for up to a year to 15 months, once your loved one's out of treatment, to have them not only to help and assist your loved one, right, but also to be there to guide you and assist you as a family member. Um, mm -hmm. we, we have a process in place, uh, a, a portion of our programs called the Segway Program, and I love it. And I always tell families like this is there to design, to hold your loved one accountable, to move them in the direction that they need to be moving in. But don't forget that that coach, that 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 clinician is in your corner as well. Right. So you're no longer having to make these decisions on an island driven by emotion. Um, and so if if that's possible, having someone in your life um, and you can find that outside of an organization, a, a, a treatment organization, you can find that in a support network, right? Having a sponsor inside of an Al-Anon group. You pick the phone up and call your sponsor, your support network, and you ask, this is where I'm at. Does this sound okay? Can you advise me on this? And 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 that's that's just another key piece, I think, for having this this unit in place for a family member because you're gonna you're gonna be faced with decisions and you're gonna have to make decisions. Um and, and it's easy to be driven by emotion, right? Um, and, and not to mention, guys, guys I, like, I, I can't speak for Kevin, but um, somebody that's newly sober is very easily, um, it, it's easy to slip back into the old behaviors, right? And can someone else take care of this for me? Can someone just help me? Um, I'm just asking one time. And we've sharpened that skill. I honed that skill right over a course of seven or eight years. 
And so that has not gone away usually in early recovery. I'm still going to look and see if people are interested or, or available um, to do some things for me that might be uncomfortable financial situations, right? I, I need you to bail me out of this. So having someone in your corner who you can call and, and ask for guidance is, is really a key component, I believe, for families. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. And, and I think uh, the thing I was also thinking of is that, you know, um, one of the things I always, the families I talk about, talk with is, you know, now that they're sober, it doesn't mean that everything's all better and we can just drop everything. You know, it, that's just the beginning. And, you know, I'm glad that the loved one's sober. I'm glad that the loved one's coming home. But I mean, I'll tell you, the, the number one thing my parents did for me when I got sober and went back to school in Los Angeles is, I tried to wangle some money out of them and they're like, no, no more money. You know, mm -hmm. you, you gotta, you gotta get up on your own two feet and you gotta start handling your business and take care of yourself. And so, all right, we got, Hey, we got a, we got some great questions. We got a question from Danya. It says, what should I do when not every family member is on board with seeking recovery and change within themselves? So what do you do when you're the, the lone voice of recovery in the family system? Well, again, right, we talked about earlier, right, if we have five people moving in a healthy direction, it's better than one or two. The same applies, in my opinion, is if we have one member moving in a new direction, it's better than none. Um, this is where oftentimes um, a spouse, for instance, right, like let's just say the mom's really heavily involved and she's engaged, she's reading literature, she's she's knee-deep in Al-Anon all of a sudden, um, and then I hear, hey, my husband's not interested. What do I do, right? Um, how do I get him involved? Because I'm nervous, I'm afraid. Um, and, and this is where the, 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 the control, the, the need to manage, the desire to change others comes into play again. It's another form of, um, it's really just another form of trying to manage another person's life at that point. Um, recovery is, 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 is something that's best taking part in when other people are attracted to it, right? There's a, there's a term in 12 step recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it says attraction rather than promotion. Um, I know that's challenging. It's easy to justify and say, Hey, listen, you know, this is, this is my son's father. This is my son's sibling. Um, how, how come, how come, how do I get them involved? I would keep the your eye on the prize, which is um, internal rearrangement, right? I'm moving in a new direction. I'm trying to involve myself. If others in the family system want to join, I'll, I'll, I'll make it known that they're welcome to attend and I'll do my best to detach at that point. I don't know how you feel about that, Kevin, but. No, no, you and I are on the same team. And I'll actually tell you that in my family system, I got sober in 91. And uh, I, you know, turned around and was like, hey, this would be great for everybody in the family. And they were like, yeah, no, thanks. You know, <laughs> we're good. We don't need your help. We don't need to get sober. We don't need to go to Al-Anon. We don't need to address our issues. And, and so uh, that, that was just kind of part of the reality of my family system. And, and so I continued to be sort of the lone voice and the lone re you know, as person going through this process. And so I understand, Danya, where you're when you feel like you're on your own, I mean, my mom was a, a struggled with addiction her entire life and I desperately wanted her to get clean and sober and it just never happened. And she passed away in 2014 and that was just not her reality. You know, I wanted my dad to go into 
to understand his codependency. And that just never happened, you know? And, yeah. and so I, I think the most important thing is you got to, this is, and this is the hard part for people that struggle with codependence. And it's something that I struggle with as well. And it's, it's the old adage, you know, when the airplane starts to, you know, get bumpy and, and the oxygen mask comes down, you got to put yours on first, you know, and then you can put it on other people, but you got to take care of you. And I think the most important thing is you got to be the example for the rest of the family because they'll start noticing. They're like, that's funny. He's not in the family drama anymore. He's not arguing anymore. He's not, you know, behaving. He's behaving differently. And, and you know, that's where that attraction piece comes. And that's, that's, uh, that's the deal. Um, there was another one that I think is really pertinent to you and the program you guys offer. And it says, I'm not sure my son even knows how to pay a bill. How do you address that with a family when they're looking at BRC? Well, again, right? I mean, we, we just assess family dynamics and functioning across the board with family. Um, typically, if somebody's not in a place where they know how to pay a bill, what I would do is say, why is that? Right? Is it because someone in the family system has been paying the bills for them um, and that, that certainly was my case for a long time, Kevin. I was a, you know, I, I, I had grown man syndrome as well, where I ran around and beat on my chest and told everybody I was a grown man. And then when I got sober, I came to realize that grown men do a lot of things differently than what I was doing at that point. And, and I was 25 when I got sober. Um, but I, I would just say to a family, um, there's, there's a good chance that they don't know how to pay a bill because they've never been pressed into a situation where they've had to pay a bill. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of in our milieu, we've, we've got, we've got a good sample. Uh, you, you can always look around and people are in, engaging in life skills, right. And in, in an inpatient treatment facility, um, guys are throwing detergent in the dryers, um, mixing, you know, eggs in a, in a great big salad, industrial size salad bowl and putting that on the burner. Um, and usually when we tell families that their response is the laughter, right? They giggle. And I can't believe he did that. Why would he not know how to do his laundry? And so that's always a nice setup for, well, have you been doing his laundry? Right. Um, we had a we had a family one time at our young adult facility that their loved one had a um, a magic laundry box and so a basket and so as long as the laundry was in two feet of the laundry basket it magically got folded and put away and so um, that's that's our young adult facility so there's definitely some more enmeshment and codependency that we see in a facility like that but um, you know there's there's just I always tell families, please don't beat yourself up. Please don't feel ashamed for what you've done or what you're currently doing. Um, I've heard a lot, Kevin. I know you've heard a lot. I mean, it's just it's 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 a part of what what we're after. Right. We have to identify these things in order to make new movement and start start heading in a new in a new direction. So, yeah, absolutely. It's not about finger pointing and blaming. It's just more evidence that we just need to change the system, not change the individual. Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Last question. And then we'll wrap up. Uh, what advice would you give someone who's watching their loved ones struggle with drugs and alcohol? So someone who's got an active person in their family system, what, what, what's the best advice you have for that person? 
Well, a, a lot of the times it, it, the best advice I would have is I, you know, this is a, um, this is, it, it's been identified as a brain disorder, right? I mean, it's an illness. Um, and so you can't consequence this thing away. You can't, you can't, um, you can't reward people and, and this thing is going to go away. I mean, many of you, you know, if you're watching this, you know that you, you probably already tried to do one or both of those things. Um, your loved one needs, your loved one needs help. They need guidance. They need support. Um, there's a lot of value on my end from um, getting support and guidance from people who've also been in similar spots. Um, and I think that um, contacting professionals in your area professionals um, that you know of that maybe someone else that you you've encountered over time has, has had involvement with. Um, but really get getting help for that individual. I'm not just saying, Hey, here's, here's your option. Here's your chance. See you later. Um, homelessness does not cure substance use disorder. Nope. Um, you know, so I, I do think uh, at least affording them an opportunity setting them up, trying to assist that individual. And then in the meantime, while you're trying to assist them, beginning to find assistance for yourself and, and tapping into a group, a counselor, a therapist, um, maybe a family consultant, right? That can really guide your family and show you um, here's, here's the steps in order that need to be taken in order to give your loved one and your family system a, a real shot at, at changing the dynamic. Yeah, exactly. And and a um, little shameless self-promotion. That's what my book, uh, Chronic Hope, Families and Addiction, is all about, is setting the boundaries. Like, this is exactly what your family and my family did. Set the boundaries. But, but like I also said, we're here to help you if you're willing to get sober and take things differently. You know, if you're not, then that's cool. We're going to respect your choices. But we're, this is about change. And so if you want to change, we'll help you change. But if you don't want to change, that's cool. We're changing and we'll, we'll be over here, you know, out of jail. <laughs> Let us know when, you, when you're ready to get out of jail and, you know, and, and be part of the system. So, Lane, man, I God, this has been a great conversation. I could do this all day with you. Uh, I love it. It's so much fun. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate all your knowledge and wisdom and advice. Hey, um, tell us how, uh, how does somebody get a hold of you? How does somebody get a hold of BRC? So brchealthcare.com, um, you guys, that we've got a website. We've got several different programs under that umbrella. Um, and if, if, if anybody needs direct contact to the facility, just Google brchealthcare.com and you can get in touch with our admissions team, they can answer any and all questions that you may have about our program. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the, the primary um, way to get a hold of BRC Healthcare. Fantastic. Well, hey man, have a wonderful President's Day. Thanks for spending a little bit of your vacation time with us. Uh, and uh, you know, this has been the Chronic Hope Podcast and we appreciate you guys sending in questions. Next month, we're gonna be doing this again. Uh, we always want, always happy to answer people's questions. Um, so anyway, that's all I got, man. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. All right, Lane. Take it easy, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. You guys are... Your host, Kevin Peterson. Please join us again next time. We exist to provide support, education, and hope for families who are struggling with addiction and codependency. 
Remember to connect with us on Facebook, as well as subscribe to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you again soon.